it's starting to come together a little bit for me. This is an episode that I enjoyed about 80% of. And then it just kind of got... Huh? Right towards the end. <clears throat> See, here's the thing. My first thought when I saw this episode was, Oh, good, a chance for Alexander Siddick to actually act. Because this is the first actual... Well, I say Bashir episode. But an episode where he's one of the main characters uh, ever. This, this is his first shindig. Thing is... Alexander Siddig actually plays three roles in this episode. Bashir, idiot pretending to be Bashir, I don't remember his name, forgive me, and idiot. These are the three roles he plays. So, he plays Bashir, and I'll talk about that in just a second. Then the way he plays idiot playing Bashir is really good. Like, there's some good stuff there. He actually manages to nail a surprisingly subtle performance of being different, and I noticed it immediately when I'm really paying attention and have analysis mode on, because I'm watching it, and they actually bothered to give us Bashir as Bashir at the beginning. You know, the 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 smarmy, stuck-up dickhead that it's been thus far. Then it gets to, you know, he, uh, make me live, blah, 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 and then he moves on, and then it's like, okay. um, And then what we have is Bashir just barely noticeably acting differently. He's a lot less smug, he's a lot less overbearing, he doesn't push boundaries where he shouldn't, he doesn't make any unnecessary passes at, at, at Jadzia. He just is kind of... normal. And Bashir hasn't been normal up till now. And, it, and again, it's a nice portrayal, he does a good job of it. Then we get to the end. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in just a second. L let me go ahead and talk about the episode promise. It's probably going to be one of my shortest ruminations uh, that we've had thus far for Deep Space Nine. So, I mentioned that Bashir acts like Bashir at the beginning. I have to be completely honest. I had to pause this episode at the 42nd mark because it was becoming too much for me. Yeah, excuse me. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I had to pause and be like, okay... Just just get over it. He's this horribly overbearing idiot. Okay, and all right, now we go. Now, now we go. We can, I can deal with it. And then, of course, you know, he's like, oh, God. And what I thought, I, I, as I was watching the episode, I don't remember this episode perfectly, so when I was watching the events as he goes on board, and there's the, uh, the cop lady. I don't remember her name either. And... <laughs> And then there's, he's like, oh my god, this door is sealed. There's a fire in there. I need to save him. He is, I, I, my first thought was, oh, okay, he's going to ignorantly release the prisoner and that's going to lead to the mind control. But then she actually tells him, no, that's a prisoner. Don't let him out. And it's like, huh. Okay. He still does it anyways. Now, that part's not surprising. That's not like bad writing or anything like that. That's very typical of your archetype doctor character. And remember, they don't really have a character for Bashir yet. So, whatever. Like I said, he acts differently immediately. Um, nice stuff. And then, now we talk about the thing I've been talking about with Bashir to date. And we will continue to do this as we go along, because I find it interesting and amusing, and I hope you do too. I mean... I haven't, my, my first episode, Emissary, hasn't even gone live as of me recording this, so I don't know your guys' feedback yet. So, if you hate this feature, let me know, and in about two months, <laughs> I'll, I'll find out about it. Uh, anyways, so, 
I'm actually not sure if this would have been any different if we had super genius Bashir versus our Bashir. Now, the reason I bring that up is it's shown towards the end of this episode, twice actually, that real Bashir can fight against idiot uh, when he is conscious. So the obvious argument is maybe if he put him into unconsciousness, he therefore wouldn't be capable of fighting back, but would that advanced of a brain be capable of putting him into unconsciousness, or would he be more capable of fighting back? Like, it's the similar line of theory that a Vulcan can fight off mind control more easily than a human can, the more disciplined and, and strong, basically, willpower of the brain, right? I don't know. This is the first one I say is a, is a toss-up, thrown up in the air. I have no idea if this would make more sense or less. So we're just going to put a big old question mark on this one and let the Riddler have it and we'll move on. What I do want to talk about is... How do I put this? Odo and Quark have another excellent scene in this episode, which is nice. And what's funny is this is the second time we've seen this type of conversation happen on camera. The conversation basically is Odo and Quark, and Quark talks about things, and then segues into talking about things in a different manner. Now, I know that sounds super vague, but what I mean by that is, previously he's been like, Oh, Odo, I'll use a specific example, because this happened, I think, twice so far. Um, he says, isn't there anything you want? You know, isn't there anything you desire in uh, Qless? And then he goes from, from speaking of things that are superfluous and unnecessary to things that would actually be useful and, and quantifiable. And I talked about that in that rumination. Here he does the opposite. He talks about things that are reasonable when he's talking about the company of a familiar face or a, or a consoling voice or anything like that. And then drifts into the unreasonable. And he has a couple of interesting lines that are surprisingly good. Uh, the little bit of, how do you put it? There's nothing wrong with delusions. I sell them all the time up on the hollow suite. Or, uh, to use another example, hang on one second, there we go. Uh, to use another example, uh, he talks about the every unreasonable wants. There's, there's, that's especially the kind of thing I want to want is unreasonable wants, things I can't have. Those are the best things to think about. And then Odo, of course, segues that naturally into that shipment of Deridium, kind of showing that he already knew about it. Now, I've always liked Odo's approach to things, with a couple of exceptions. He is, <laughs> he is a little totalitarian, as we've already seen up to this point in time. That's already been established. He almost tried to do that with the Dura sisters, remember. But... In general, his approach to investigation and crime stopping is interesting. And I, and I find myself enjoying it. It's actually really rare that I enjoy a, for lack of a better term, cop-type character. In fact, I can only think of two exceptions of that off the top of my head. Odo and Garibaldi. Although I would argue that Garibaldi's more of a detective, whereas Odo is, as they say, far more of a constable. That brings me to Primin. Now, Primin was the first experiment of this type. Later they would try the same thing with Eddington, and then, as you know if you've seen this show, go in a different direction with that. But the idea is, it's, it's actually kind of a semi-complicated topic when you think about it. The, 
How many times have you seen a you know a CSI episode or you know a lawyer program or a movie you know all fictional stuff where concepts of jurisdiction have been a major sticking point and either the good guys can get their way by legalizing their way around the jurisdiction issue or the bad guys can get their way by legalizing around the jurisdiction issue I'm sure you've seen at least a dozen examples even if you can't name them specifically of what I'm talking about now in real life, jurisdiction's a little more gray than that, and it's not... It's the kind of thing that can be used as a defense, but not as a hard line, at least here in the States. I don't know how this works in other countries. And, of course, when we get into country lines, things get even grayer, but you get my point. But the problem here is that this is actually a complicated and interesting concept, because who is in charge of Deep Space Nine? Whose station is it? Right? This is something that's actually already been brought up and has already been a plot point more than once. Is this a Federation station or is this a Bajoran station? Now, the th interesting thing about that is the answer is effectively both, which is why things get complicated. Joint ownership, joint rulership is a concept and is a thing. The way they've kind of shown it so far here is a little closer to Bajor owns, but Federation runs. Although even that isn't 100%, because obviously the Bajorans have some legal uh, discourse, rights, etc., that supersede Federation ones. And that's already come up, again, and that will be a major sticking point, gosh, for years at this point, because that, that clear line of jurisdiction is going to matter up to and including the war. But then we get into more down-low things, because Odo is in charge of security, but then they bring on a Starfleet security officer. Now, let me just go ahead and say that at first I didn't think I was going to like Primmon, because, whoa, because he first comes across as, well, there's no nice way to say this, season one Harry Kim. You know, completely green, by the books, way too rigid, you know, the kind of character you usually present when you are deliberately crafting a character arc for them to develop out of that, like they should have done with Harry Kim. I'm sorry, I'm still upset that they just completely destroyed Garrett Wong's character over on Voyager, but whatever, whatever. Point being, <laughs> moving on, point being that... I thought he was going to be that way at first, and he is that way in the first scene we really see him. Actually, first two scenes, excuse me. First when he talks to Odo, then when he talks to Sisko. But then they do something interesting. They have him eat crow, basically immediately. And he goes to Odo and says, I'm sorry. Friends, you know, let's work together on this. I like that. Do you know how weird it is to see someone from Starfleet do that, who's not a main cast member? Oh, you know what I mean by that. How many times in the original series and TNG do we see the obstinate Starfleet officer? You know exactly what archetype I'm talking about. But Primmon comes on, he's like, hey, oh, okay, shake, shake. And then pretty much from then on, he's cool. You know, it's, it's actually hilarious to me. I haven't been able to use these yet for DS9, but uh, he walks up to Odo and says, hey, we cool? And Odo's like, yeah, we're cool. And I love that. I love the way they do that. Whoops. I also knocked something over there. <laughs> Anyways. In addition to that, though, we still have this jurisdiction problem. We still have this issue with how this works. Uh, but before I get into that, actually, I want to say one other thing really quick. You remember how I mentioned during Captive Pursuit 
how Odo tends to be the kind of person who will act to you how you act to him, very reciprocal. He does the same thing here. When Primin tries to tell him how to do his job, he's... <laughs> but the moment Primin comes and is like, sorry, friends, Odo is very cordial and very polite with him and works with him. There's probably only one exception to that, and it's, it's, it's literally over a trifle. But that leads me to the next thing I want to talk about. I love how Deep Space Nine has already established character arcs. We've already seen a lot of character movement with two major characters so far. Probably not anyone you're thinking of. It's actually Quark and Odo. These two have had the most overall character development and the beginnings of character arcs than anyone else has thus far, as of now, as of this eighth episode of Deep Space Nine. And by the way, I just realized a lot of you are probably going to take issue with the way I'm doing my season episode numbering. I mean, I, I, I just hate... Uh, maybe I'll change my mind on it in the future. Uh, I'll debate it later. It's just frustrating the way they do it. Emissary is not two episodes. Anyways, I'm sorry. Moving on, moving on. <clears throat> so, eighth episode of the season so far, of the series so far, and we see Odo is carrying a mask around. Now, I know I talk about this a lot, because the whole concept of character masks and the development of the character underneath the mask is one of the types of character arcs I tend to enjoy the most. I've said before that some of my favorite games when it comes to the characters tend to be games about masks and how everyone wears one mask or another. Final Fantasy VI comes to mind immediately on that one. Odo's mask is that he is this detached, unoriginal un un observer who's miserable and alone. And yet we've already seen that when it comes down to something that matters to him or that he cares about, he gets really emotional really quickly. In fact, and I don't mean this as an insult, he is very immature when it comes to things he cares about. Now that makes sense with information we have from later on in the series. He is still, in terms of intellectual development, pretty damn young, all things considered. You know, he's, he's, he is actually the youngest character on the show. Yes, I think he's even actually younger than uh, Jake Sisko. Uh, I'm not sure about Nog, but it's, it's definitely down there because of how little development he has and how little experience he has in actually dealing with things like emotions. Remember, under the Kardashian regime, which is most of what he's known, emotions didn't really get entangled with things that way. So wants, desires, personal beliefs, caring, none of that really came into the equation. So it is logical that this Odo, early Odo, who really has basically had his job and his own concept of, as he puts it, justice, and that's it. That's all he's got. So it's logical then that that's what he cares about and why he gets so upset about it. He basically throws a temper tantrum. He doesn't do it like a child would exactly. He doesn't go to, rah, 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 but he goes in there and says, I want to give you my resignation right now. That is, that is basically table flipping right there. But it makes sense that he would do it. Because this hurts him. This stings him. This is the only thing I've got is my frickin' job. And if I can't do my job, my way, what the hell, you know? What else do I have? It is then Cisco's turn to turn around and rather diplomatically be like, All right, I like you, Constable. And by the way, that's an honorific. And I think that you're a cool guy. We cool? We cool. I'm not going to put the glasses on again. I don't feel like it. Actually, you know what I am, because this is pretty much how Cisco approaches the whole meeting. Cisco is just like, listen, 
All right? You know, we... Okay? And Odo tries to... Odo's like... And then Cisco's just like, no, 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 no. It's cool. It's cool. We cool? And then Odo hits him with that question, who's in charge? Now, you notice Cisco hesitates for a second. And I think he does that because he wasn't sure which answer to give. Because the ideal answer would be neither, right? Joint operations. Odo even called it that. But seeing how important this was to Odo, and seeing that Odo probably was serious about this whole thing, he says, all right, you. You are in charge of joint operations. And Odo's like, okay, okay. He almost seems embarrassed. That might be me just interpreting, but it's like, okay, yep, all right, I can go with that. So, <clears throat> I wanted to talk about that jurisdiction thing just a little bit more, because it's a concept, it's another one of those concept things, again, this is a real-life concept, not a fictional concept, that I find fascinating. This has actually come up many times in real-life history. Rome is where my mind immediately goes. I'm not sure why, but in certain times in Roman history... Um, you know, what do you do when you have two members of, of uh, you know, two consuls of the same rank who are at present in charge of the same battle? Now, they actually came up with a really stupid way of dealing with that. But, you know, how do you deal with a situation like that? Who gives the orders? Now, the ideal is obvious. What should happen is the group, the council, even if it's just two people, should sit down, discuss and come to an agreement on what to do. And thus, the group says to do this. It's the same general me mentality behind any type of government or organization in real life where one person is not in charge. That is the entire mentality of Congresses or House of Representatives or Senates or, you know, rep general Republican representative, whatever. You know, that type of government boils down to that concept. The group agrees then that's the order that goes out from the group as a whole. However, and I'm not going to get any political things about the, the viability of that, because there's that old saying that it's impossible to have actual cohesion past three people. But regardless of that, what if you have two people, like we have here, and they disagree? Now what? And I'm not talking about like a minor disagreement. Like if Odo says we should check Corridor 3 first, and the other guy says, oh, we should probably check Corridor 1 first. That's a minor disagreement, and that can probably be hashed out probably even in a few seconds. Like, well, this, well, this, well, okay, fine. You know, it's not a big deal. What if they severely disagree about something? Now, this doesn't come up in the episode, thankfully. But what if one of them says, I think we should do this because la, 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 and the other one says, well, I should think we should do the exact opposite, and both of them firmly believe in their convictions? Now you have a problem. This is actually another reason why a lot of those organizations I mentioned earlier tend to have an odd number of members, because then it's impossible to have a tie. But with two people, <laughs> you see the problem. And thus, this jurisdiction mix is just interesting to me, and I, and I love uh, the, the very concept of it, and I hope <laughs> that they will do some interesting things with it in the future. Um, I say that weirdly because I don't have any distinct memories of them doing anything interesting with Primin. And, of course, the Eddington thing is kind of a different category of what they did there. Eddington was more of a thing to Cisco than he was to Odo. So, I don't know. It'll be interesting going through with, you know, with the fine-tooth comb to see if they actually use this concept well. That being said, I liked Primin. He's a good actor, he did a good job of his role, and there's this great little bit at the end, which is simul... Like, at first I was like, oh, come on! Because they do the classic red herring thing. But they only do it right at the last second. 
Nothing in the whole episode made me think that Primen was in any way involved in this. Up until they're like, oh my god, where is he? He should be here. He hasn't turned in. Da, 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 da. I'm going to go find him. Rawr. Oh, he was just looking into this in his own way. Okay, never mind. You know, it, it's like a weird red herring kind of a situation. But that, that brings me to another thought, if I may be so bold. The way they construct the mystery, this is the first episode that I have covered uh, in the course of the TNG and the DS9 stuff that actually does that mystery idea of a script properly. And I like that, actually. I, I've mentioned this before, how several episodes of early TNG and early DS9 are framed as if there should be a mystery, but we, the audience, can figure it out almost immediately. Or we are flat out told what's actually going on. So there's no mystery. So we're just watching the crew slowly figure it out. I, I pointed this out on Qless. I've pointed this out several times in season one of TNG. You know, there's no mystery. It's just we're watching the crew slowly figure it out. This episode is framed as a proper mystery and even does several things a little bit too classically such that anyone familiar with the genre would probably immediately be like, oh, it's Bashir. Because... Two, two big things. First of all, now I will admit I only noticed this when I was, you know, really paying attention, as is my job for doing this kind of a thing. Um, when the mysterious voice grabs uh, Quark, Siddig does a lot to disguise his tone. But unfortunately, and I've discovered this myself in my own real life, unless you are a very skilled voice actor, which I am not, um, your voice is always going to sound like your voice. You know, there's always going to be distinct markers that's going to let someone identify that you're the one speaking, no matter what you do to it. So, now, there, again, some people get around that, but that's true for the overwhelming majority of people. So you can tell, if you're paying attention, that it's Alexander Siddig, a.k.a. Bashir, talking to Quark. And it only comes out in a few tones, like he's like, ah, ah, and then he, like, lowers his voice to hit another particular note, and it's, oh, okay, it's Bashir. But ignoring that... Because I can forgive that. He, they do a really good job, and I probably wouldn't have noticed it if I wasn't paying attention. Ignoring that, what they do, which is classical, and again, art, almost stereotypical uh, mystery production, or construction, excuse me, is we have the scene where it's revealed that he is in fact alive. You were told to expect me, and now... You will do what I ask of you. You know, he does that whole thing. Cut to commercial. Very next scene is Bashir. And, and what Bashir is doing is acting like, well, acting like the guy pretending to be Bashir, but nevertheless acting how he has the entire episode, so nothing out of the ordinary, and discussing the case, and basically throwing all this information out that makes it more and more clear from an evidence perspective that he's innocent without actually saying he's innocent. It is well constructed. Again, it, it's well done. It's just, if you know the construction of a typical mystery, you look at this like, oh, it, it's him. You know, that's one of the two big tricks. The other trick is introduce and then forget which sometimes uh, a lot of works do as well. So, and then, and then of course, what's best about this is he then, he is the person basically in charge of identifying, you know, who the guy actually is because they suspect this whole brain thing. And then he immediately casts suspicions on the most likely suspect, the woman who has been rather antagonistic the entire time and has been insistent more than once that she knows how he thinks. 
again, this is still well done because that's one of those surface facts, complex facts situations. It, I talked about that over on Babylon 5, and it's one of the things that I love about Babylon 5's uh, presentation of Garibaldi, is he, he would look at simple facts, draw the deduction, and then he would look at complex facts under that and draw a completely different deduction. He was thorough, like a true detective should be. And so, if you look at the simple facts, oh yeah, it's her. It's obvious, right? But if you look at complex facts, not everything quite lines up with that. And in fact, like I mentioned earlier, the episode tries just a little bit too hard to make you think it's her. And any time a fictional work leans evidence more in the way of a particular person when it comes to a mystery, you can bet 99 times out of 100 that that person is not guilty, or at least is only partially guilty. Which leads me to the final bit I have to talk about. I like this episode. I do, actually. I really do. Um, right up until... Idiot. God, I can't remember his friggin' name. Shows himself as the guy, as the villain. Right? And... For those of you not aware, uh, Alexander said it gave a performance which... I don't know what it sounds like. I can only assume. It has been referred to as if it was similar to Bela Lugosi, who you could probably most clearly remember as playing a very stereotypical, like, vampire-type thing. I, I don't know. I can only assume... I can only assume that he was talking like this! Ah, ah, ah! No, I'm kidding. But seriously, though, the problem is he's clearly doing this with his dialogue, and it's really distracting. <laughs> now, that being said, I, I mentioned I don't know what the original performance sounded like. You can kind of tell if you watch it. They dubbed over all his lines. Like, e everything from, from the point where he reveals himself until, he, you know, he's removed, basically. Uh, or rather, when, he's, uh, when the, the pulse hits on the, on the bridge of his ship, is him talking to a microphone trying to, to lip-sync with his previous performance. And it shows. And it's awful. I'm sorry. I Normally I like to say that, oh, I've seen this actor act, but this is, this is terrible. It kept pulling me so far out of the performance, and I'm just like, oh my god, dude. Dude, stop. Stop. Ugh. And it's a shame because, again, it's not like he can't act. It's not like he can't play a villain, for God's sakes. This guy plays Hannibal. I guess you could argue whether or not Hannibal is a villain or not. But what is this? What is this presentation? <laughs> so I, I was having a really hard time focusing for the entire last part of the thing because I kept looking at his performance as the bad guy. <laughs> And what's really weird is I'm not sure why he had to do that at all. I wonder if it was the director, or if it was the actor, or if it was some combination. Because if you're trying to portray yourself as different, there are more subtle ways to do that. I know this because he's been doing this the entire episode, remember? His different portrayal, right? I, I already talked about that. So it's not like you can't do a subtle performance that'll make it indicate that you are a different person or acting differently or under the influence or whatever. It's not that hard to speak with the same general type of tone and change the general way you're presenting yourself to make yourself seem more villainous. 
I'm probably doing it more excessively right now than I even need to, but I don't know how much the microphone is getting up my voice. And of course, some of you aren't even watching me right now, so you can't see how my body language has completely changed. Right? It's not that hard. Why did they go with this? I'm, I'm sorry, I'll let it go, I'll let it go. It's just, it destroyed the last bit of the episode. Two more things. First of all, I actually liked it when they beamed Bashir over and he says, It's okay, I'm me. Because the moment he said that, I said, Oh, that's not him. I know that sounds weird. It was like a last desperate ploy by Idiot Boy. But it's so obvious, if you think about it, for even a second. Because we've seen how Bashir is actually Bashir, right? He wasn't like, Oh, I've been mind-controlled or anything like that. No, he was like, Where am I? Shields? What's going on? We're just complete disoriented. So Bashir, if it was actually Bashir, wouldn't go from complete and utter disorientation to, it's okay, it's me. No, that is clearly and obviously the other guy. And thus, and then when he was like, Ugh, that was Bashir fighting back. Sense make? Second thing. This is the only thing in the episode from a lore perspective that actually irritates me. So, you know, I forgot to even comment on that. Uh, quick aside, do you think... You know, I'm going to look up his goddamn name. I don't even care about him. I'm just, what's your name? Uh, Rao Ven Ventica. That's his freaking name. Okay, Ventica. <laughs> it wasn't that memorable. What do you want from me? So, Ventica, right? Based on how events are told, I think Ventica died and what was wandering around in... Bashir's body was a clone, was a separate him. I've talked about this concept several times before, and this will come up several times in the future, especially when it comes to Star Trek. I know at least one episode this will come up on TNG, and at least one episode where this will come up on DS9. But the idea, again, just to reiterate in case you don't remember, is you are here, and you make a clone of yourself, and you die the second the clone comes to life. That's not you. You know, your perspective, if you put the camera into your perspective, you die, you cease, you're done. That is you too. Now, they may be the same person at that moment of activation, but they are effectively a completely separate entity. Make sense? Right? That being said, I think he's a clone in this one, because it sounds like this wasn't his main plan. His Whatever his original plan was just didn't go according to plan. And this was his last-ditch effort. And as... Uh, Jadzia points out he, he probably put the stuff in his fingernails months ago which was just a copy or a data backup or whatever of his brain of his mind so the him in the chip was was not the real him it was a copy of him in, to enable him to go forward now I find that interesting because at that point what we have is a man who is so desperate to live that he's willing to die to do it <laughs> Weird, when you think about it, isn't it? Although that could, of course, could be a Hollywood not understanding the concept I just mentioned. Uh, there's actually an episode, or episode, excuse me, a movie uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Sixth Day or something like that, I forget what it's called, which didn't understand the whole cloning thing either and had no idea how to deal with that. And, and I, even when I was watching the movie, I'm like, you're kidding, right? Anyways, I'm willing to accept that at least the clone was transferred into the chip at the end, so that's the same entity. Because we know energy transference can happen. And it's at least possible that he was able to transfer into Bashir. So it's at least possible it's the original him. I'll be willing to concede that. I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you guys think. 
What I find really interesting is the moment that ownership of the prisoner is transferred to her, she shoots him dead. Now, my first gut reaction was, yeah, that's exactly appropriate. But then I started thinking about it. Why didn't she do that the moment she captured him? No, I'm dead serious. Why didn't she just shoot? If she has the jurisdiction or right or doesn't care about the legality enough to take this guy out, why ever try capturing him? Why go to all this trouble and all the expense and all the difficulty and all the, the danger and risk of capturing a live prisoner when you could just vaporize? Why do that? The only explanation I've come up with at all is that now she was certain that was him and so she could vaporize it and it would be done. And that's all I got. Even that's kind of a weak excuse, you know? I mean, at the very least, she could vaporize whatever was in front of her and take her chances. Keep keep an eye out to see if he's ever in the future, you know? Something? I don't know. Anyways, we're done. The pieces are starting to come together as to why, when I was first watching this with my mom when it was coming out, I wasn't really that enamored with Deep Space Nine. Going back with analysis mode, I've actually really been enjoying almost all of these episodes, you know, with only a couple of exceptions. I think really Q-less is the only episode I actively didn't like so far, and even that had good parts. Now, this is also the final episode that will be going live in December, which means we will be starting the new year with the episode that made me quit Deep Space Nine. Hope to see you there, guys.